On today's episode, what runners need to know about nutrition and inflammation with Dr. Peter Bruckner. Welcome to the Run Smarter podcast, the podcast helping you overcome your current and future running injuries by educating and transforming you into a healthier, stronger, smarter runner. If you're like me, running is life, but more often than not, injuries disrupt this lifestyle. And once you are injured, you're looking for answers and met with bad advice and conflicting messages circulating the running community. The world shouldn't be like this. You deserve to run injury-free and have access to the right information. That's why I've made it my mission to bring clarity and control to every runner. My name is Brody Sharp. I'm a physiotherapist, a former chronic injury sufferer, and your podcast host. I am excited that you have found this podcast and by default, become the Run Smarter Scholar. So let's work together to overcome your injury, restore your confidence, and start spreading the right information back into your running community. So let's begin today's lesson. Thank you to all those who have purchased the Run Smarter book. Uh, you may have seen on social media last week, I posted um, a graphic showing that we've reached 100 copies and you listeners that have sent me a photo of the book arriving, it means a lot to me. So thank you for doing that. Um, I'm not sure when the audiobook is coming out just yet. I have finished most of the editing and just need to find a way for it to meet this SCX specifications, which is essentially audible, has really strict um, rules about, you know, how much gain there needs to be, how much dead space there needs to be, just like little specs that I just don't understand. So I'm trying to get on top of that. And fingers crossed, if all goes well, the audiobook is out in the next week or two. And today we have Dr. Peter Bruckner. He is a sports medicine physician, and I've followed Peter Bruckner for years and years, ever since I became a physio and watched him do a lot of work with the Australian cricket team, heavily used his Bruckner and Kahn textbook, which once you graduate from physio in Australia, if you want to work in private practice, you get his book because he mentions it in the podcast as well, but we always call it the Bible of physiotherapy. Just has all the conditions in there, what the evidence shows for management, for treatment, for risk factors, all those sorts of things. And so it was a real pleasure for me to have Peter on the podcast. I managed to dampen my whole experience once I recorded it and realized that my microphone had actually switched over. So my audio quality is terrible. So you'll have to forgive me for the poor quality. I just bought a new webcam for YouTube and it's since like made that my default microphone and I hadn't realized it until we finished recording and then I was doing the editing process. Um, Peter sounds great, by the way, and for any interview to go wrong and for me not to talk a whole lot, it's this one because Peter is a lovely storyteller and really talked like quite well within this whole interview and just made my job really easy. But as he explains, he's focused the second half of his career onto nutrition and explaining carb diets, the responsibility of glucose and insulin resistance and talks about pain and how that sort of relates to the overall inflammatory process in the body and what you need to do about it to settle down inflammation and help you recover, help you perform. I have since bought his book. I got it 
a couple of days ago and have just been reading through it and halfway through it now. Absolutely fascinating read. And it sparked me to get a few other guests on in the future around this similar topic. If you're looking to learn more, I'll leave a link in the show notes to his book, A Fat Lot of Good, and also the Defeat Diabetes website and all those sorts of things that he mentions in the interview. Okay, hope you enjoy. Peter, thanks for joining me on the podcast today. Pleasure, Brian. Let's start off with a bit of an introduction for those who might not be familiar with you. I know the physios and health professionals that do tune in um, would definitely have heard your name around, but a lot of the podcast listeners are just recreational runners. So do you mind just uh, giving us a, an intro? Yeah, sure, sure. Um, basically, I'm a doctor, so uh, did a did a medical degree, um, and then uh, sort of in a circuitous route, sort of finish up in sports medicine. Um, so I specialised in in sports medicine um, at a time when sports medicine was just starting, really, and uh, back in the 1980s. Um, probably half your listeners weren't even born then, but anyway. Um, so. Uh, Opened up a sports medicine clinic in Melbourne uh, called Olympic Park Sports Medicine Centre. It's, uh, it's been going strong for, for nearly 40 years. Um, and, uh, yeah, got involved in, uh, in, with different sports and different teams. I uh, worked in, in the AFL for a while uh, initially with, uh, with Melbourne years ago. Um, then got involved with a whole bunch of national teams, so swimming team, uh, hockey, men's hockey, athletics, uh, soccer, cricket. So done a whole bunch of different uh, different things. Finished up at a couple of Olympics. Um, did the Socceroos. Did a World Cup with the Socceroos. Then went to Liverpool in, in England. Worked in the Premier League for uh, for a while, and then came back and worked with the Aussie cricket team for for five years. So I've had a good uh, a good run of uh, diff- interesting teams that I've I've worked with, um, and. I also have an academic position at uh, at La Trobe. I'm a professor of sports medicine at La Trobe, so I have a part-time job there. Uh, written a textbook and a few books. Uh, the physios are probably familiar with uh, with Brookner and Kahn's uh, clinical sports medicine. It's sort of the bible of uh, of, uh, of sports physio. Um, and um, I, probably in the last ten years, I've sort of uh, you know pivoted a bit. That lovely word, pivoted. Uh, we didn't uh, have that word a few years ago. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, I've sort of uh, got more interested in nutrition and and uh, and helping people uh, trying to help people eat better because I believe that uh, that uh, what we eat is uh, is you know, is the cause of a lot of our, our medical problems. So I've be, become very passionate about that. Uh, I've set up a, a not for profit called Sugar by Half. Uh, written a book called The Fat Lot of Good. Uh, launched a, an app based uh, program called Defeat Diabetes. And uh, yeah, spent a lot of my time now trying to uh, promote healthy healthy eating. So. Uh, yeah, that's me in a nutshell. Great. Well, it does seem from looking from afar and observing your career, it does seem like a quite a drastic shift towards the nutrition advice type of things. Um, what was the particular drive or reason behind that? Well, as you know, as often is, it's a personal experience. Um, so, ten years ago, uh, I'm living in Liverpool. Uh, I've just turned uh, sixty, um, and if you'd asked me then, you know. Was I healthy? How was I? You know, I just said, yeah, man, fine. You know, um, hadn't uh, had any sort of significant illnesses. Um, I had, you know, led a, what I thought was a fairly healthy life. You know, a sort of low-fat diet and regular exercise and so on. Um, but the reality was, I probably wasn't quite as healthy as I uh, as I thought I was. Um, for a start, I had a family history of type two diabetes, so my father had developed type two diabetes at exactly that age, and I was pretty keen not to go down that track because I saw what happened to him. Um, 
I was uh, obese, so I, you know, like many middle-aged men, and and you know, I uh, I uh, regard sixty as middle-aged. I used to think it was old, but now I think it's middle-aged. Um, <laughs> like many middle-aged men, I'd, I'd probably put on you know like half a kilogram a year for thirty years. You know, just uh, gradually getting thicker around the waist. The kids are sort of poking me in the guts and saying, you know, come on, Dad, how about it? And I'm sort of shrugging my shoulder and saying, well, hang on a minute. You know, I have a, you know, I eat what I'm supposed to eat and I exercise and so on. Anyway, so I was, I was obese. You know, not grossly obese, but you know, certainly, uh, probably, I don't know, 12, 15 kilograms over overweight. Um, and I had a. Uh, a bunch of metabolic uh, issues. I won't go into the gory details, but I'd had a fatty liver for uh, for ten years. Uh, fatty liver. I I didn't really understand what it was at the time. I now realise it's a sign of pre-diabetes, and um, I'd had that for ten years. I had blood tests every couple of years. It always came back as you know consistent with fatty liver. I didn't really understand what a fatty liver was. I figured I was on a low-fat diet, and you know that was it. So <laughs> anyway. Um, uh, and I'd had uh, high triglycerides, high insulin levels, and so on. So. In retrospect, I was clearly pre-diabetic, um, you know, all the, all the signs, but I didn't understand that at the time. And um, so um, I was, you know, cruising along uh, happily, and um, I I started to, you know, hear these whispers about uh, people challenging the the, uh, the concept that, that, you know, fat was the problem with uh, with our diet and uh, people suggesting it might be uh, my sugar and, and carbohydrates. And, and in particular, Tim Noakes, who many of your listeners would, uh, would know, author of the law of running, the sort of the Bible of, uh, of running. Uh, Tim's an old friend of mine, and uh, we've been buddies for a long time. And um, he's a super smart guy. Like, he's probably the smartest guy I know, I think. And um, he's challenged a lot of sort of traditional uh, ideas in, in sports science, and he's invariably been proven right every time. And uh, he came out around that time and sort of said, no, no, you know, I think we're wrong. Uh, I don't think fat's the problem. I think it's uh, it's sugar and carbohydrate. And he'd he'd developed type two diabetes despite you know a supposedly healthy diet and running every day and running, you know, ten comrades marathons and sixty marathons or you know whatever a huge amount of running. And uh, he developed type two diabetes and and felt terrible, overweight. Um, yeah, felt shocking. And stumbled across this sort of a, a book and uh, read a book and, and decided to try this low carb. And he said within a week he knew he was a different person. And uh, he reversed his type two diabetes and uh, lost weight and, and just just felt so much better. So he was kind of starting to talk about that. And I must admit, when I heard that, I thought, "Oh, come on, Tim! You know, like, you know, you're really <laughs> you're really pushing it too far this time. You know, you couldn't possibly. I mean, the whole of Western society couldn't possibly have been on the wrong diet for for forty years. You know." But because it was Tim, I thought, oh, look, I need to look into this. So I read a book uh, by a guy called Gary Taubes, who's a science uh, journalist in the US, a book called Good Calories, Bad Calories. And uh, this book just blew me away. It just uh, – it not only sort of talked about the, the relative merits of, of fats and carbohydrates, but talked about the, the politics of how the sort of the low-fat movement had won out over the low-carb movement back in the 1960s and – which I'd always assumed was due to, you know, science and evidence and so on, but it turns out to be due to money and politics and, and the US agriculture industry. And I remember putting down this book every night thinking, nah, nah, this couldn't be like this couldn't be right. You know, we couldn't have got this we couldn't have got such a basic thing wrong. And yet, you know, every page I'd read there was more and more evidence that uh so I then dived out I'm a bit, you know, O C D and uh, I dived into every book and a journal article and, and you know, re review that I, I could and just immerse myself in this 
And the more I read, the more I thought, Jesus, I think, you know, I think he's right. And uh, so I thought, now, hang on, I'm a scientist, so I've got to do some science. I'll do some research into this. But also, as a scientist, I know that research with an N equals 1 is a waste of time, except when the 1 is you, of course, when it becomes important. <laughs> so I decided I was going to do an N equals 1 research project into this uh, low-carb, this weird low-carb stuff. So uh, I thought I'd do three months, strict low-carb. So day one, weighed myself, got all my bloods uh, taken, and um, away I went. And uh, so I basically stopped eating um, anything with sugar um, and uh, anything, anything starchy. So I stopped eating uh, bread, rice, pasta, potatoes, um, and uh, I went back to sort of eating probably you know the way my parents and grandparents had eaten. You know, lots of real food, so, you know, meat, fish, eggs, you know, eggs, all that cholesterol, you know, full-fat dairy. Oh, you can't have full-fat, you know, all that sort of stuff. Um, you know, fruit, veg, nuts, uh, that sort of stuff. So um, real food, you know, is really what it was uh, was all about. Uh, but it all happened to be, you know, pretty low-carb. So probably 30 grams of carbs a day, maybe 50, you know, something like that. Odd glass of red wine, you know, a few veggies. Um, but uh, I ate really well. So what happened? So the first thing that happened was that um, I stopped being hungry. So instead of, you know, sort of having my, you know, my cereal at, you know, 8 o'clock and then getting to 10.30 thinking, oh, God, you know, must be time for, for lunch soon, um, you know, I'd have sort of eggs and bacon and avocado or something like that for, for breakfast and I wouldn't eat again all day. And uh, so I went from eating three meals and three snacks a day to eating two meals a day and I still eat two meals a day today and just not hungry. Um, and then, then I started to lose weight. You know, every week I'd lose weight, and I thought, ah, oh, the first week or two, you know, it's beginner's luck sort of thing, you know. And uh, but I just kept losing weight. Um, I started to feel more energetic. My my exercise uh, levels improved. I um, uh, yeah, I started to concentrate better. I wasn't sort of feeling sleepy, you know, after lunch and things. My sleep improved. I stopped snoring. Um, you know, lots of things like that. An amazing difference came over me. And so at the end of that three months. I'd lost uh, 13 kilograms in 13 weeks, and I did my bloods again, and I reversed all my metabolic abnormalities. So the fatty liver I'd had for 10 years completely disappeared. Uh, triglycerides back to normal, insulin back to normal. Uh, lost 13 kilograms. You know, felt great. Um, the only negative thing was that I needed a new wardrobe because I'd uh, <laughs> gone down two sizes in every uh, in everything, and um, I figured that was a small price to pay. So for sure. So that was, you know, that was just, again, just blew me away and I, I wouldn't have believed that that could happen. And um, so I guess when something like that happens, you know, you've got two choices, really. You can say, right, okay, I'm all right, mate, you know, and, and uh, look after myself. Or you can say, look, Jesus, you know, I've sort of come across something, you know, I'm not suggesting I was the first to come across it by any means, but, you know, I've stumbled across this, you know, I should be telling people. Uh, and, and people would ask me because they'd see, you know, that, God, what have you done? You know, it was pretty obvious that I'd, uh, I'd lost a, a hell of a lot of weight. And um, so I started talking about it and, uh, and started writing about it and, and became an advocate of this, uh, this low-carb sort of healthy fat way of eating. And, um, and that led to, um, you know, becoming, you know, as I said, a an advocate giving lots of talks, writing articles, um, set up this uh, this not-for-profit uh, sugar by half to try and uh, educate people about sugar and, and reduce the amount of added sugar. Wrote a book called The Fat Lot of Good uh, a couple of years ago, um, just putting down all my what I'd learnt over the, the previous 10 years. And uh, as I said, we just started up this uh, new program called Defeat Diabetes. So, yeah, it's become uh, it's become my passion. Um, I've sort of linked it a bit with, uh, with, with sports medicine as well. Um, 
obviously, uh, you know, a lot of athletes are now sort of heading in that direction as well. And uh, and also my research, I've tried to sort of link, uh, you know, the, the low-carb sort of anti-inflammatory type of diet with uh, with osteoarthritis. We've got a PhD project going at the moment on that and, uh, and so on. So... Yeah, linking you know, linking the two different parts of my life, I guess, and uh, and trying yeah. to join them together. It'd be nice to, I guess, um, dive into that particular link because when we we had a brief phone call before this, and you said, "Oh, let's talk about inflammation and the influence it has on the body," and I guess trying to relate diet with inflammation. What what does that exactly mean, and what 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 sort of process does that have? Yeah, that that's a very good question because it's something that I had. No idea about it until uh, until fairly recently. Um, let me let me start by telling you a story um, about a cricketer. Um, so we're in I was with the Australian cricket team. We're in India in uh, 2013, and uh, one of the players had had uh, terrible problems with his knee, and um, he'd actually had to step out of cricket for for 12 months and uh, had constant knee pain, and he'd been to see every sports doctor and, and all sorts of people had MRIs, had arthroscopies. No one could work out what was wrong with him. And eventually he saw a rheumatologist who decided it was inflammatory. So it was an infl- it was an arthritis and what we call a, a seronegative arthritis. So it's a bit like rheumatoid, but it's not rheumatoid. So a very inf- you know, inflammatory type of arthritis. And he'd put him on some pretty heavy-duty medications. And, and by the time I saw him, he was, on a, he was injecting himself with a, with a, a drug uh, that affected the immune system um, once a fortnight, and it was sort of under his pain was under control, you know. So, um, but not not fantastic. He wasn't able to train fully, and uh, he was not in the team. He was on the outskirts of the team, and he was struggling a bit. Anyway, he was also a little bit overweight. Amazing how many elite athletes, despite how much they train, are a little bit overweight. But that's another issue. Um, so he was a little bit overweight, and he said, "Oh, look, you know, he'd, he'd seen what had happened to me, and." Uh, he said, look, I'd like to try this, this diet of yours. And um, so basically he went on to a low-carb diet, uh, which in India is not the, not the easiest place to do it in India. You know, no rice, no, no <laughs> naan, all that sort of stuff. And um, he went on this low-carb diet. And he was pretty strict. The good thing about you know, elite athletes is they're, they're pretty disciplined. So uh, he, uh, he did it, seriously. Anyway, so three weeks later he came up to me and said, Doc, I forgot to take my injection the other day. I said, well, what do you mean? You know, I said, well, normally, you know... After about 10 days after my injection, my knee starts to ache. And so I get that reminder and I know it's time for my injection again and I and I inject myself again. Now, by the way, this drug is probably $15,000 a year drug, um, you know, very uh, heavy-duty sort of a drug. Um, and uh, and he said, oh, what should I do? You know, should I should I wait? You know, I mean, should I take, the, take the, the drug now or wait? And I pretended I, you know, expected that to happen, you know, and knew exactly that was why that was going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> I had no idea, of course. Um, and I said, no, why don't you wait? You know, wait, wait and see what happens. Anyway, cut a long story short, he no longer needed the drug. Um, he'd basically cured his seronegative arthritis that required a drug that cost $15,000 a year and restricted him doing. He cured that by changing his diet, by removing carbohydrates from his diet. And he has continued on and... Uh, Twelve months later, he was uh, back in the test team, in the top ten batsmen in the world, and uh, and he still is today. Um, so, you know that that blew me away. You know, I mean, I, I couldn't believe that. You know, that was the first indication that I'd had really of the role of diet in inflammation, and it's you know 
never talked about, wasn't written, you know, I'd never read anything about it or like that. And so that sort of piqued my interest in uh, in the relationship between diet and, and, uh, and inflammation. And um, so I guess I've been interested in it ever since. And, and nowadays, inflammation is the buzzword now in, in medicine uh, because... You know, we're all familiar with sort of acute inflammation, you know, the red hot swollen you know, joint that, uh, that gets inflamed and so on. But what seems to be the big factor in, in medicine now is what they call chronic low-grade inflammation. And it seems to be the, the thing behind all chronic disease, um, whether it's, uh, you know, atherosclerosis, you know, coronary heart disease or um, um, even, uh, even mental illness and, and so on is thought to be, uh, you know, due to inflammation now. And that just you, you set up a chronic low-grade inflammation and it just uh, causes damage. And, um, you know, diabetes is thought to be due to that. Uh, you, know, it, it, you know, pretty much every chronic disease, there's this chronic low-grade inflammation is a really big factor. So what do we, you know, what do, we do about that and try and sort of, uh, you know, get rid of this or counter this, this uh, inflammation? So that's why... People have started to look at, traditionally it's been drugs, you know, as it was with this cricketer, you know, heavy duty sort of drugs. And so there's all, all the anti-inflammatory drugs, you know, the, the simple anti-inflammatories and the, the more complex sort of, uh, you know, cortisones and, and things like and the injections and things like that. But people have started to look at, you know, for want of a better word, lifestyle factors that might affect inflammation. And there's a fair amount of evidence that... Just quickly chiming in here to let you scholars know, I have just updated my five-day injury prevention challenge. This is one email per day for five days, learning new concepts and diving into the science on how you can reduce your risk of injury. The sign-up link is in the show notes, so fill in your details and I'll be waiting for you in email number one tomorrow. Diet aside for a moment, that uh, lack of physical activity... Um, things like smoking, alcohol, stress um, are all factors, maybe lack of sunshine, lack of sleep, are all factors in, uh, in promoting inflammation. But the biggest one seems to be diet. And there seems to be a, a pretty consistent sort of group of, of dietary substances, if you like, that are what we call pro-inflammatory and some that are anti-inflammatory. And um, and so what we've you know been doing is trying to sort of put people with these uh, chronic inflammatory problems on the on an anti-inflammatory diet, which is very similar to a low-carb sort of a healthy fat diet. Because most of the inflammatory stuff is sort of sugar-related and uh, and uh, and processed food-related. We can talk about that in a minute. But um, yeah, so uh, it's amazing, you know, the the difference it makes to people's uh, pain and inflammation. By, uh, by changing their diet. So what do you think is actually going on? Do you think the body just doesn't like processing these type of foods and so it just has some sort of reaction in the, in the gut that produces this inflammation? Yeah, look, it's, it's complex, but it seems that, uh, yeah, uh, let's take sugar, for instance, you know, that uh, um, so you get these what they call glycated end products, so that sugar sort of can, attaches itself to proteins and so on, and and uh, and impairs the, uh, the the work of, of the protein. Uh, the gut is certainly involved. Uh, I think you know the, the microbiome. You hear a lot about the, about that, and and uh, and sugar and 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 processed foods and so on seem to you know 
negatively affect the, the microbiome, and that uh, and that has it plays a role as well. So, yeah, I think uh, it's certainly you know it, it's a complex bio you know, biochemical sort of uh, reactions and so on. But there seems little doubt that uh, that sugars and, and and processed carbohydrates and, and processed foods in general um, can uh, can increase inflammation. Um, mm. Yeah, that, that's I think they, you know, that's pretty well accepted now. And uh, you know, it, it sort of all makes sense. You know, if you think about you know the changes in our in our eating in the last sort of you know generation, if you like. I mean, we're now eating just processed and ultra processed foods, you know, uh, largely, and then um, uh, and then the increase in these chronic diseases, you know, that uh, we hadn't heard of. You know, uh, you know, when I was in medical school, we'd never heard of Alzheimer's disease. We'd never heard of you know celiac disease and gluten insensitivities and all these sort of things. You know, so um, it seems to make sense that these, uh, that, you know, that they're all. Uh, there's a cause and effect there that uh, mm. diet has played a huge role in this rise in, in chronic diseases. And uh, and we've got to get it sorted out because we're not going to, uh, you know, the the medical profession's response to this is just drugs and more and more drugs and, and, and find new drugs and so on. Whereas the, the, the solution is to uh, is to change these lifestyle factors and particularly your diet. Mm. Is there any subtle signs for like a recreational runner that might indicate they need to make a, a rapid change in their lifestyle or is it more just like a self-reflection on their diet in general or their lifestyle habits in general is there anything that might emerge as a subtle sign to say okay i need to do something i need to change something well i think you know uh, multiple injuries recurrent sort of you know overuse type injuries um i think that's a that's an indication that i'd certainly be trying but i'd be looking at, uh, at dietary factors uh, there um constant soreness you know um uh Poor recovery from from training. You know, you're sore for uh, you know two or three days after a, after a hard run. That that sort of their poor recovery, if you like. Um, I think that's uh, an indication that uh, that you know you might have an inflammatory sort of uh, environment, if you like, in in in, in your body. Um, and and I think it's just a matter of you know a trial and error, really. Um, you know, I've had so many athletes, you know, come to me and say, oh, you know, I've tried your uh, you know your low carb and 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 you know you wouldn't believe what happened, you know, that I, you know, I, I didn't feel sore the day after, you know, I run a marathon or I, uh, um, you know, my Achilles, you know, well, my own experience, I mean, I'd had a chronic Achilles problem for, for years, you know, woke up every morning, you know, you put your foot on the ground, you get that achiness in, in the Achilles and so on. And uh, at some time in that uh, that three months I went on low carb, my, my Achilles pain disappeared. And I'd, I remember, you know, waking up one morning and thinking, hang on a minute, you know, and I was, it was always tender, and I sort of, you know, went down and squeezed my Achilles, and I wasn't painful anymore, and uh, it, it was remarkable. And uh, you know, I had so many, uh, you know, colleagues and, and patients and, and, and friends who've had similar experiences. You know, people who have knee arthritis or have uh, hip arthritis or something like that. And you know, you suggest uh, maybe they should change their diet, and and you can tell they don't really believe you. You know, they're skeptical. Oh, no, bloody diet, you know, it's crazy doctors trying to tell me. You know, I just want to take tablets. You know, and. Um, and and they'll come back and say, you know, no, I didn't believe you, doc, but gee, it makes a difference, you know. So, I think there's a there's a lot to be said um, for uh, you know for reviewing diet and uh, and the, the effect that diet can have on on inflammation and and basically the, the secret seems to be the, the two things that really um, seem to co- to promote inflammation is one is is sort of sugar, you know, so uh, carbohydrates because um, remember it's not just sugar. I mean. You know, even th- 
people sort of say, oh, yeah, we know about sugar, but starch is okay. You know, the bread and rice and pasta, that's okay. Well, the problem is that bread and rice, rice and pasta are starches. And they're basically just, what is a starch? A starch is just a bunch of glucose molecules stuck together. And so the, uh, the body, the gastrointestinal system, breaks down that, uh, that starch into, into glucose and it's absorbed into the blood as glucose, the same as sugar is. It's just a bit slower because it takes longer to, uh, to get digested. So carbohydrates uh, you know, uh, turn into glucose and glucose seems to uh, promote inflammation as does fructose, which is the other part of table, uh, table sugar. So, so that's particularly inflammatory. Then the other thing that, that seems to cause inflammation is what we call the omega-6 fats. So that's basically vegetable oils. So when you heat vegetable oils, they, they give off a whole lot of uh, substances that become quite inflammatory. And um, you know, as we've changed from our, in our cooking from you know, our parents' generation who used to cook with, uh, you know, with, with butter and lard and... and uh, um, and and so on, and beef tallow and, and things like that, to these sort of cheap um, vegetable oils, or they're actually seed oils, they're not vegetable oils, but vegetable oil sounds better. Um, mm-hmm. They're seed oils, and, uh, and they are very inflammatory. And, um, you know, without getting too complicated, there's a, you have omega-3 fats and omega-6 fats, and we used to have been a ratio of one-to-one, omega-6 to omega-3, um, and now, you know, there's about 20 times the omega-6 uh, compared to the omega-3, which are the, the anti-inflammatary fats. So, you know, it's made a, our diet has changed enormously. And uh, as a result, you know, in, there's a lot more inflammation around. And, uh, and I think that's a, you know, it's a really key factor, not just, you know, in two things. One, in, in illness, so in, in you know, in uh, all sorts of chronic illness and so on, but just in, in general sort of lifestyle, um, you know, in, in sort of... Uh, soreness and, and uh, you know, response to exercise and, and so on. So, yeah, I, I think uh, inflammation is, is just really at the centre of, uh, of just about everything we do at the moment. For a recreational runner, it's a common belief that, you know, for energy, an energy source is carbs, mm-hmm. like your carb load before a marathon. And if you're halfway through a, a high-volume training cycle, you need a lot of carbs for that's your primary energy source. What, what would you say for that in terms of trying to educate runners where that energy would come from with a low-carb diet? Yeah. Yeah, well, that, I mean, that's actually the, you know, it's always been the traditional thing and I've, you know, always been a proponent of, of carbs and, as you say, you know, the, the pasta party the night before the marathon and, and all that sort of uh, lots of Gatorade and Powerade and so on. I mean, but there is an alternative fuel source and that's, uh, and that's fats in the form of ketone bodies, you know, keto You've probably heard of the keto diet or the ketogenic diet or whatever. And um, so the, the body has these two, well, and, and also protein is a third fuel source. But the, the two main pro, um, sources of food are, are fats and, and carbohydrates. And the body will always preferentially use carbohydrates. So if carbohydrates are around, the body will, uh, will work off carbohydrate. But if carbohydrates not around, so if you don't have carbohydrate, if you don't take in any carbohydrate, the body will start using fats, using ketones. And they'll use that from your diet and also your own body fat, of which you, you know, everyone's got plenty. Um, so that's why a keto diet is, is a very uh, good weight loss diet because you, you burn, burn your own fat. But you can also uh, exercise on, a, on, on ketones. And um, people say, oh, no, but you, know, you, you, need, uh, you, know, you need glucose. The, the reality is you don't need glucose. Um, 
Um, you can manage perfectly well on, on ketones. There's always a bit of glucose around. I mean, you can't be zero glucose, you know, zero carb diet. There's always enough glucose around. And if you ne- desperately need glucose, you can always make it from, from protein or carbohydrate. But there are a lot of people now um, playing around with, uh, with, you know, using fat as a, as a fuel source. In particular, uh, the ultra-endurance runners. So most of the top ultra-endurance runners in the world are now on a uh, are using fat as uh, ketones as their major fuel source. Um, the advantage of that is that uh, they can their performance is, is just as good, um, and they um, they don't need to keep refueling. So you can you know you can run a marathon or, or do an Ironman or something like that with uh, without having to constantly having to uh, to you know refuel with carbohydrates. So there's uh, there's advantages to um, to a uh, to using fat as a as a fuel, the other advantage of obviously is the health aspect of it. You know, you're not having this massively high sugar load that uh, that a lot of athletes have, and uh, you know we don't know what the long term consequences of, of that is. I mean, we I know what I suspect they are, but uh, they're not good for your uh, for your body. Now the uh, the counter argument to that is is that um, you know you. High intensity exercise requires carbohydrate, and that's in most cases that's right. Um, if you're an elite athlete, or you know you're uh, wanting to you know to run you know fast 800 meter, 1500 meter, whatever, you're you're probably going to need carbohydrates. Not as much as people think you need, but you you might well need carbohydrates. But there are also plenty of people. I mean, I have AF, top AFL footballers who are on. Uh, on a you know ketogenic diet and have very very little in the way of, of carbohydrate, so you can certainly function very well on uh, on on a uh, on a low carbohydrate uh, diet. What a lot of um, say football clubs, for instance, are doing at the moment is that they're doing this concept of train low and compete high, and that uh, during their sort of steady state training days, um, and and cyclists are doing this as well. You know, on their their sort of Average boring, you know, four-hour training ride. <laughs> they'll do a, uh, they have a low-carb day and, and and focus mainly on on healthy fats and things, and then on uh, on a big, you know, climbing day or a big you know, sprinting day, you know, they'll they'll pump in the uh, the carbohydrates. It's the same with footy, you know, you'll you'll have uh, during the week you you might have some carbs on your big training day, and the other days you're low carb and you get your you you get your body learning to use to burn fat. And then on game day, you might just supplement with some uh, some carbs to, to top you up. So everyone's different. You know, some people can manage on no carbs, some people low carb, some people need more carb. But it's certainly an interesting concept and uh, and one that's probably healthier in a way because it worries me that you know we've had a whole generation of of you know athletes who've had massive amounts of carbohydrates, mainly in the form of sugar, and I, I worry about the long term effects of uh, of that. I've got pasta ready for dinner tonight, so. Um, it's a good good thing that I've chatted to you. Maybe I'll have to substitute it out for something else. Well, the good thing is that there, there are substitutes. You know, I mean, I eat pasta too, but I I, I make it from zucchinis, you know, and mm. zucchini noodles, and just as tasty, and uh, and probably a lot healthier. You know, if I want rice, I'll use cauliflower rice. You know, with my, my curry or something like that. So, you know, people say, oh, I couldn't do without you know pasta. I couldn't do without you know I, I bake my own bread. You know, and uh, with uh, with nuts and and, and and seeds and so on. So, you know, there there are alternatives, and uh, and and they're becoming more and more uh, widely available. I mean, you can now get you know zucchini pasta in in, in the supermarket. You know, I I have my uh, sort of little. Uh, 
purely thing that I, that 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 turns it into uh, into noodles. But um, yeah, um, I think you know we've got to be a little bit careful about uh, about the amount of, of, of carbohydrate and sugar that we're, we're having. I mean, for most people, you know, for young people, you know, who, who are insulin sensitive and, and, and metabolise carbohydrate, well, it, it's it's not such an issue. But certainly as you get older, um, uh, you know, it, people uh, become more insulin resistant. So uh, they, they don't um, process carbohydrates as well and uh, their blood sugars rise. And, and that's when you develop prediabetes and metabolic syndrome and then ultimately you know, type 2 diabetes, which is a, it's a horrible disease. I mean, there, there's probably 2 million Australians with type 2 diabetes and another 2 million who have pre-diabetes. And uh, it's not the diabetes per se that's the problem, but it's, you know, it's, a, it's the most common cause of blindness, the most common cause of kidney uh, failure, the most common cause of amputations, the most common cause of heart disease, of Alzheimer's. I mean, it, type 2 diabetes is bad news. And, uh and it seems that, you know, that the more carbohydrates you have, you know, the more likely you are to uh, cause your sort of pancreas to, to wear out, if you like, and, uh, and, and start, to, uh, start to fail. And that's when you get type 2 diabetes. So, uh, yeah, that, that's, it's a really interesting, uh, interesting time, I think, in, in nutrition. It's, it's a real time of change because sports nutrition, you know, nutrition generally has been pretty boring for the last sort of 30 or 40 years. You know, really, mm-hmm. it's, it's, you say it's carbs, 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 and... and uh, you know, Gatorade and Powerade and, and, and all that sort of stuff. And um, and that's really it. And, um, you know, nowadays, uh, you know, there's some really interesting work coming out that, uh, you know, it's not quite as simple as, as we thought it was. Hmm. Going back to, I guess, the recovery from running-related injuries, like you mentioned your Achilles tenderness reduced and felt a lot better. Um, one of my passions is, like, exploring the complexities of pain and knowing like say with chronic pain, stress, anxiety, like thoughts, catastrophization, all these sorts of things um, influence the pain sensitivity. Um, I guess one thing I haven't necessarily explored that well is the role of um, sugars and carbs and that sort of stuff in their diet and probably as you may describe acts as like maybe a pain amplifier or increases the sensitivity of pain with just more Mm. inflammation circulating throughout the body. Um, would that be something that an injured runner would need to need to look at and have a, like analyze their particular diet to see if maybe that has a role in pain signals and like how sensitive a particular structure is? Yeah, I, I think it's worth uh, looking at. Um, there's a uh, there's a physiotherapist in Sydney called Rowena Field who you should get on your uh, on your, or your program. She's just finished her PhD uh, looking at the role of diet in uh, in chronic pain. And um, and she's shown that uh, you know a, a lower carbohydrate diet can have quite a significant impact on uh, on pain. And um, similarly, um, you know, there's uh, there's a group at uh, at Deakin University who have looked at the, the role of of diet in in anxiety and and, and depression and so on. And, and again, they've shown that uh, you know um, reducing you know, carbohydrates and, and and improving diet. Can have as, as as much of an effect on 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 those sort of conditions as, as any medications and so on. So, you know, there's really interesting stuff. There's stuff coming out about uh, Alzheimer's disease and Parkinson's disease and and and, and all sorts of different uh, and and inflammatory bowel disease and so on and uh, the role of diet in all these uh, all these different areas. So, I think it's it's a really exciting time. And, and I think, you know, I think anyone. I mean, you know, with due respect to my my medical colleagues, you know. Medicine doesn't have all the answers, 
and and drugs is not the answer to everything. And uh, and I think you know we're we're gonna you know over this next uh, you know decade or two, I think there's gonna be more and more understanding of the role of of lifestyle issues. You know, I think the role of exercise and and is really uh, you know become. Uh, much clearer in the last uh, little while, and I think diet is the next sort of a step, if you like, um, to show that uh, you know you can really impact on on your health and and on on disease and injuries and so on by improving your diet. And uh, I think it's definitely worth a you know worth a try. You've got nothing to lose, and uh, yeah. it can be you know some some people will be re amazed. I think at uh, the the impact a change of diet would would have. You mentioned a list of potential causes for inflammation. You said diet's the big one, but you yep. mentioned decreased physical activity, increased stress, alcohol, not a lot of sunlight, um, decreased sleep, those sort of influences. Mm. And I'm just thinking of an injured runner who has like, you know, calf strain, unable to run if they don't have any other cross training alternatives, they're obviously dropping in their physical activity, they increased most likely in stress because of the stress of, you know, trying to get back into running and just, you know, it's never pain equals misery most of the time. And so a lot of people are quite stressed. They're not likely to get that much sun because they're not exercising the same way that they used to. And, you know, all these sort of influences just seems like it perpetuates the, the inflammatory cycle and probably a lesson for those who are injured just to, you know, focus on, maintaining some sort of physical activity with cross training you know mental their mental state their emotional state just getting out in the sun just walking around those sorts of things would be probably quite helpful for not only just their well-being but you know overall inflammation in general yep yeah no I, absolutely i think it's a it's a really interesting area and um all those uh, all those factors have been shown to uh to promote inflammation and and therefore promote pain and and, uh, and disability and so on so uh you know i think uh like sun is a really interesting area you know because i think we've you know we've gone way too far in this sort of you know slip slop slap sort of uh, obsession we have in australia with uh with keeping out of the sun and um and to the point now where kids just are never exposed to the sun um you know in the old days you know we'd be running around you know with our shirts off and and you know sort of Get a sort of a suntan, and and uh, you know you try you always try to avoid getting burnt, but uh, you know you were exposed to, to sun, and uh, and as a result, you know vitamin D levels are going down. I mean, you know, country like Australia, no one should be vitamin D deficient, you know, and yet, you know, we've got a lot of vitamin D deficiency, and and uh, and that and and you know, sunshine seems to have an effect on on nitric oxide and a whole lot of other uh, factors. So I think that's one really interesting area, and I'm not saying go out and lie in the sun, you know, in the middle middle of the you know, heat of summer and, uh, you know, get burnt rotten and so on. But, you know, getting exposed to, uh, to you know, moderate amounts of sun for, you know, amounts, various amounts of time. And I always think there's a good reason why we have spring before summer, you know, and it gives people a chance to, you know, to uh, to let their, you know, their bodies get used to uh, gradually increasing amounts of, uh, of sun. But, uh, yeah, sure, avoid getting burnt. But, you know, let's get out in the sun and, uh, and, and you know, get some sunshine, you know, 20 minutes a day and uh, really important if you can. What are your thoughts on fruits? Because obviously quite high in sugar and it seems like the dietary requirements are only have two pieces of fruit per day because it has such high sugar. Um, what, where do you fit on the, the types of fruit or how often we should be having it, if any? 
Yeah. Look, it really depends. You know, I mean, um, and I know, you know, I don't want to sound like it's a cop out, but I mean, you know, if you're, you know, diabetic, pre-diabetic, morbidly obese, and so on, you should be avoiding pretty much all fruit. You know, the the only fruit I have is is berries. You know, which are low carbohydrate. But if, on the other hand, if you're young, healthy, and so on, you know, I mean, having uh, having you know an apple and orange and, and and so on. I mean, I wouldn't be having heaps of bananas because I think they're full of starch. But you know, having a banana or a banana smoothie or, or you know, a shake or something like that is is fine. So it really depends on on where you're at. Um, but you know, I think certainly fruit is not as healthy as you know as we are led to believe. Um, it uh, it does contain you know lots of you know obviously fiber and some and vitamins and minerals and so on. But um, it also, yeah, it, it, it uh, contains a lot of fructose. And uh, fructose is the thing that, uh, that affects your liver. Uh, it goes straight to your liver, causes fat, you know, it gets converted to fat in the, in the liver and, uh, and, and probably in the pancreas as well and, and can eventually, you know, contribute to uh, the development of, of type 2 diabetes and, and, and so on. So, you know, I would, uh, I'm not saying don't eat fruit. Um, I'd say if you're diabetic or, or pre-diabetic or worried about that, um, I'd really restrict. Be careful what you eat. Um, eat the low, the low sugar uh, fruit. Uh, if you're young and fit and healthy, yeah, a couple of pieces of fruit, you know, no problems at all. But uh, you know, again, it, everything sort of depends on this insulin resistance. You know, how where you are on the spectrum, if you like, of, of insulin resistance. You know, how, whether your body's metabol coping with carbohydrates or not, and uh, you know that that uh, that depends on you know whether you're diabetic or not, and so on. Okay. That would probably, you seem to say age had a particular factor in that as well. Is it like as we get older, we become, we uh, generally, no, yeah, generally speaking, um, but you're not necessarily. I mean, you know, you, if you look after yourself, you know, there's no reason why you have to uh, put on weight and, and, and become uh, more likely to be diabetic and so on. Um, but, you know, that's the way things seem to be, you know, to be going at the moment that people get. Uh, Getting fatter and sicker as they as they get older, but it's not, you know, it, it's not necessarily due to age. Uh, it's just a period of time where the longer you you uh, eat poorly and and you know, a sedentary and all those other things and smoke and, and drink and so on, then the more likely you are to get to, to get sick. So, uh, you know, I, I think, you know, we, we we tend to want to sort of hand over responsibility for our health to to, uh, to someone else, you know, to a doctor or to or to you know someone else. I mean, really, we've got to take responsibility ourselves. You know, it's your body, you know, and, and it's your responsibility that is to as to how healthy it is. You know, and, and you can be very healthy if you want to be. You know, you just can be prepared to uh, to to do it. And and part of the problem is that we've been telling people the wrong thing all these years. You know, we've been telling them to eat low fat and and, and you know have lots of uh, lots of carbohydrates and, and, and starch and so on. And that hasn't been good. I mean, that's been disastrous, and that's been this biggest single. Arguably the biggest single health mistake we've made in yeah. history, and yeah. uh, we're all suffering as a result of that. And uh, we've got this, you know, we we have two thirds of the country being overweight or, over, or obese. You know, well, I mean that's crazy. You know, really mm. shouldn't be. I mean, we're, you know, Australia is a healthy country. We've got a good, you know, climate. We can, you know, we can exercise. We've got a good culture of exercise. You know, we we can afford to. You know, most people can afford to eat well and so on. And yet we're in the top six most obese countries in the world. I mean, that's you know, it's crazy. I mean, why you know why is that? And, and yeah. the reason is we 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 eat rubbish. You know, and and you know, food is is cheap and tasty and uh, um, you know and brilliantly marketed and promoted. 
um, especially to kids. And uh, you know what do kids think is a treat. You know, going to going to Macca's and going to you know to fast food and so on. And uh, you know, we've become addicted to to sweetness. You know, every all foods now are sweet. You know, even things like you know barbecue sauce or tomato sauce. You know, it's full of sugar. You know, because that's what we expect. You know, and uh, we've got to we've got to turn that back and uh, and ch- turn things around, or else we're just going to continue getting fatter and sicker. Yeah. Macca's is McDonald's for all the North American listeners that are out there. You've come out and challenged and changed a lot of the narrative around what was considered, you know, good nutrition advice. Mm. Um, and you've sort of gone against the grain. Is there, is there any other misconceptions or any other myths revolving around diet that you sort of come across that we haven't yet covered? Um, look, I think we've covered the main things. Um, so drinking is an issue. You know, there are people who think we should be having, you know, litres and litres of, of water every, every day and, and just, you know, fill ourselves up with, with water. And we push that. I, I push that. We all push that, you know, with exercise. You know, uh, you see, you know, you watch a, a football match and then people are drinking all the time, you know, in between, you know, scores and things like that and so on. Um, I think that's a bit of a myth. You know, I don't think there's really good science behind, uh, you know, eating, uh, you know, drinking, you know, eight litres of water a day or, you know, all the sort of uh, recommendations that are made. I mean, I think, you know, you drink when you're thirsty and uh, and I think that's, you know, that's a pretty good uh, a pretty good rule. I mean, uh, you know, that that's kept people going for thousands of years, you know. <laughs> people uh, haven't been over-hydrating over um, until relatively recently and, uh, you know, I think, again, it's a bit of a marketing tool and, uh, you know, I mean, if you'd told my grandparents that people would pay to buy bottled water, you know, they'd have laughed at you, you know. And I mean, uh, you know, we've become very, very focused on on, on overhydration, I think. Um, so I think that's another myth that, uh, you know, and again, if you look, if you look behind all these myths, there's always money. You know, there's always, yeah. uh, and it's, you know, the processed food industry, you know, it's, they're brilliant the way they market things, you know. I mean, uh, and, uh, and you look at Coca-Cola, you know, I mean, brilliantly marketed you know and uh, and they've you know they've managed to convince people that it doesn't matter what you eat or drink you know as long as you exercise so they've been promoting exercise you know it's very clever because uh, they want people to believe that you know you can just uh, you know have a liter of coke and then you know just run it off or exercise it off you know and, and you can't you know so uh, yeah we have to be very careful about uh, I think you got to be very skeptical about uh, about you know the food industry uh, because you know they're not interested in your health no one in the food yeah. industry cares one little bit about your health. They only care about their profit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, makes sense. And I, I remember, you know, growing up as a kid, everything started coming out as 90% fat free, 99% fat free. And like that used to be on like so many things and promoted as like healthy yeah. when it's just like a campaign to try and, you know, shift the narrative away from fats yeah. and onto sugar. Absolutely, you know. I mean, very clever, you know. I mean, uh, you know, the the, the, uh, the dodgy scientists told told uh, you know told the world to stop eating fat. So that the food the food industry were very clever. They said, okay, we'll do that. So they took the fat out of food, and then they realised that there was a problem because it took all the flavour away. So they thought, well, what do we do? Ah, we'll put sugar in instead. So basically, fat free means uh, means high sugar. So really, what what we what we've been on for the last forty years is a high sugar diet. Because uh, you know everything has been, the fat's been replaced by by sugar, and uh, and you know you, you look at the effect. 
you know, we're, we're fatter than ever, we're sicker than ever, you know, not a great experiment. We'd, we've been on this massive experiment in the whole world for 40 years, and you'd have to say the experiment's been a disastrous failure. I'd agree, yeah. <laughs> um, and I guess, like, everything we've discussed today is, like, tremendous amount of value for not only just recreational runners, but just their lifestyle in general, um, you know, increasing their, their amount of health. Is there any other final tips or takeaways or maybe just like, you know, some summing up messages that you might have for those as we wrap up this episode? Well, I always have, a, I love the, uh, the expression JERF, J-E-R-F, just eat real food. So, you know, you can get into all this sort of, you know, carbs and fats and protein, you know, all that sort of science and so on. But if you just stick to real food, then you're going to be pretty healthy. And real food is the stuff that's on the outside of the supermarket. So avoid the middle aisles of the supermarket. All right, mm-hmm. get your toilet paper, but that's about all, okay? But the other stuff, you know, the packaged food and so on, it's all processed food. All processed food has sugar and vegetable oils in it, neither of which are healthy for you. So stick to the real food. Stick to the meat and fish and, and uh, vegetables and fruit and dairy, eggs. You know, eggs you know, have been vilified for, for a generation. Arguably the healthiest food you could possibly have is an egg full of protein, right. vitamins and minerals, you know, and yet we've been told, oh, it's full of cholesterol. And yet we've known for 50 years that the cholesterol in, in food has no impact on the cholesterol in your blood. And yet, you know, we've vilified things like eggs. So, you know, it, we, we've just got it, we've just had it all wrong. And let's just go back to basics. Jerf, just eat real food. Excellent. You've mentioned a fat lot of good as the book if people want to learn more is there any other resources or any other maybe websites that people can go to if they want to learn more about you and your work um well as i said the fat lot of goods uh, the book um if if anyone's uh you know does have type 2 diabetes or pre-diabetes or is concerned about diabetes uh defeat diabetes is uh we have a website defeatdiabetes.com.au but we also have an app uh, an app-based program called Defeat Diabetes, uh, and we're in the process of, uh, of producing a web-based uh, program as well, which will be out by the end of the year. So, um, yeah, that's uh, that's where you find me. Excellent, Peter. Well, thanks for coming on, sharing uh, a wealth full of knowledge, and, yeah, it's greatly appreciated. Uh, pleasure, Roddy. And that concludes another Run Smarter lesson. I hope you walk away from this episode feeling empowered and proud to be a Run Smarter scholar. Because when I think of runners like you who are listening, I think of runners who recognize the power of knowledge, who don't just learn, but implement these lessons, who are done with repeating the same injury cycle over and over again, who want to take an educated, active role in their rehab, who are looking for evidence-based long-term solutions and will not accept problematic quick fixes. And last but not least, who serve a cause bigger than themselves and pass on the right information to other runners who need it. I look forward to bringing you another episode and helping you on your Run Smarter path.